the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. On Wednesday, we address solutions to reverse the gun violence in Toronto. The latest Toronto police stats provide some mixed messages. Fatal shootings are actually at a three-year low, and overall, homicides are down this year, too. But gun-related injuries are at a more than 10-year high, and that is the concern for local political and community leaders. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Wednesday, I was joined by Toronto City Councillor Paula Fletcher of Ward 14 Toronto Danforth and Reverend Sky Starr, who has lived in the Jane and Finch area for 46 years and is a trauma and addiction specialist. We actually need to go back to the root of where everything... I mean, we, we manufacture a minimum amount of guns here. We need to be concentrating on where they're coming from, port of entry, how to stop that. I mean, this is the basic, I mean, this is the first point of entry. We need to look there. I think recently the Toronto police said that over half of the guns that have been used in Toronto are legal weapons. People are breaking in, they're stealing their handguns. And of course, why would anybody need an assault rifle in the city? We have had um, so long for federal governments to be able to step in and deal with that And we are simply waiting and waiting. It's wrong. Too many lives are being lost. We heard yesterday from the public safety minister, Ralph Goodale. He says the federal government has set aside funding to help the city curb gun violence and is close to releasing a very strong and effective package that could further restrict assault style weapons in the coming weeks. Do do you believe this, Councillor Fletcher? Um. I'd like to believe this. I have no idea what conversations have been held with the city. I think it's, uh, maybe I'm a bit jaded, Jane, but no, this government's had five years to get this done, and now it's being held out as an election tidbit. That is wrong. Either you're serious about this or you're not. I've gone back in 2007 when I was working with Jack Layton. He was calling for a ban on assault rifles. David Miller, 2008, ban on on um, weapons in the city. Last term, Mayor Tory leading stop handguns in the city of Toronto and assault weapons. And, you know, I understand if somebody's way up and they need a rifle to go out and, and get a bears at their door. I've got that. But in the city, in large cities, there is no need at all these guns. And that's exactly what Mayor Tory has been saying as well, that no one in the city of Toronto needs a gun. He's right. Yeah, but then the city is not really doing anything to stop that. What happened to the ban? Why aren't they voting on things that would really help? And the funding, whatever funding is being offered, I work in the community. Most of my work is around gun violence victims and survivors of gun violence. There is nothing, literally nothing, for communities to manage after all of the shooting. This mother who's suffering right now, yes. there is no support for her. Like, do have the, support the, is going, the funds is going, where is it going? Whatever funding is getting there, it's not coming down to the ground in community where people are actually doing the hands-on work to support these families. If the Trudeau Liberals 
on their reelection platform? Is this something they can address uh, without worrying about it becoming a partisan issue? Look what they did in New Zealand after the mosque shootings there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, they did. Exactly. And after uh, the Danforth shootings, nothing happened. Yes. So no action was taken whatsoever. So I don't think this should be a partisan election no. uh, tidbit and cookie to hand out to people. I think this should be taken very seriously. It's an epidemic and simply needs to be dealt with as far as cities are concerned. And I just maybe, as I said, I'm a bit jaded, but if you can legalize marijuana in your five-year term, for goodness sake, you should have been able to deal with guns in cities within that term and not make it something you want to do next time. I just think that's wrong. Excellent point. Uh, We'll give you the final word, Reverend. We're wrapping up the segment now. Yes, we absolutely need to address the gun violence. We need to address the port of entry, but we also need to make sure that community is involved in decision-making that is being done and support needs to be given on the ground to people who are in need, like youth and children, families who are still suffering. And please remember that trauma is not just an eight-hour or uh, an an incident, like during the incident, the the shooting, the funeral, it's long-term. And the support needs to be there to help minimize that violence. Is there anywhere for, because our audience is a 45-plus audience, Reverend, and a lot of people want to give back to the community. Is there a way Mm -hmm. to get in touch with you, with what you, with you or or your organization to help out, to give back? Absolutely. uh, My organization is called Out of Bounds Grief and Trauma Support. We have a website. We have a Facebook page. Everybody can reach me at 647-724-5114. And our website is www.outofboundsjfforjanefinch.org. Trauma and Addiction Specialist, Reverend Sky Starr, and Toronto City Councillor Paula Fletcher of Ward 14, Toronto Danforth. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's been 30 years since we started recycling here in Toronto, and now the Blue Bin program is about to be radically changed based on a new provincial report. Among the findings in the report, about 30% of what we put in our blue bins ends up in landfills. There are no uniform standards for what is recyclable, and instead we have a mix of rules throughout 240 Ontario municipalities, and costs are set to go up $10 million a year. Environment Minister Jeff Urich wants to take that burden away from our cities and transfer it to the waste producers. To discuss the changes, Libby was joined by Annette Sinowitz, Director of Policy at Toronto Solid Waste Management Services, Keith Brooks at Environmental Defence, James Pasternak, Chair of the City of Toronto's Infrastructure and Environment Committee, and Ontario Environment Minister Jeff Urich. We need to work quickly to start a process of change with regards to the recycling program because it is going to take some time to transition um, we ensure to work towards having the producers responsible for the Blue Box program and make sure they're responsible for manage all the printed paper and packaging that they are supplying in Ontario to make sure that uh, uh, they are uh, being properly recycled or, um, you know, in any effect, I think this will uh, give incentive to the producers to start reducing the amount of uh, 
packaging they are putting on their product if, if they want to control the cost of the program. Do you have a number on what it costs now uh, for the whole province? I, I don't have a, a concise number, but it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, across the entire province. The um, cost is set to start to rapidly increase uh, to municipalities at uh, $10 million a year starting this year. And, and and that's not sustainable considering our diversion rates haven't improved and, and too much is still going into the landfill for the cost to shoot through the roof. And, and, and then unfortunately... Uh, if it becomes unaffordable, then you're going to see reductions in the blue box program. So this is a way to mitigate uh, the cost structure and improve the system at the same time. Cost to taxpayers before I let you go? Your cost is going to the producer. So there's, All there's of it. Really, uh, yeah, it's 100% going to the producer. Uh, we are going to be the, uh, the, the overseers to make sure that... Uh, uh, the responsibility of the producers is, is being followed through, and but the cost is going to the producers, and I'm sure uh, they'll be incentivized to decrease uh, what's being packaged, but also create new possible economies throughout the province for recycling. I am going to bring in Keith Brooks, Program Director at Environmental Defence, and uh, Annette Sinovitz, who is Toronto Solid Waste Management Services. First of all, uh, what is your reaction to this? I think it's great news. Uh, The City of Toronto has been advocating for a transition of the Blue Box program to full producer responsibility for some time. So this is great news and uh, we look forward to the province taking the next steps with a, you know, a, a, a communication to wind up the existing Blue Box program. So this is great news for the province of Ontario. Keith, the uh, advocates have been calling for this for a long time, that the shift, that the cost be shifted to the producers. Yeah, this is a very positive development, actually. Uh, we're, we're happy to see it happening. Uh, we'd like to see it happen, you know, as kind of quickly as, as, as possible. Um, and some of the discussion you were having earlier is, I, I'd like to just pick up on that and to say that yeah, we want to make producers responsible for the waste that they produce uh, because they should be footing the bill for this, not taxpayers. And also what's good about this is that it uh, it closes uh, an information loop, uh, a feedback loop, if you will, to encourage people, the producers, to, to if we set high targets to make producers responsible, they're not, not going to be making all kinds of packaging that is excessive, packaging that can't be recycled, and that kind of thing. They're going to make packaging and they're going to create systems so that we can close the loop and create a circular economy instead of all this waste that we have today. I'm going to bring in Councillor James Pasternak and he is the chair of the Infrastructure and Environment Committee. And Councillor Pasternak, does this surprise you that it's coming from a Conservative government? Well, it does and it doesn't. Uh, clearly, um, their their mission as a conservative government is to look at programs that are that could work better or or are not working and have to be reformed. Uh, this is a situation in which there's alignment between municipalities and the province, uh, making sure this program uh, meets its goals and its philosophy. And when you see a figure of thirty percent of items in the blue box ending up in landfills, I mean, you know, I got to tell you, when I when I put items in my uh, in my blue box, I'm expecting them to be recycled. Well, I'm sure there's uh, millions of Ontarians who feel the same way, but they're not. They're going into landfill for a number of different reasons. And so we need a better program. We need to take the pressure uh, off of uh, municipalities, the financial pressure. And we have to make sure that the private sector does does its uh, role. Uh, but also, uh, world situations are, are changing. The recyclables exactly. uh, that have uh, traditionally gone to China are no longer 
no, no longer available in that market. There may that means the there'll be new downward pressure on the costs of re of uh, reselling selling recyclables, and we have to look at at, at the world situation and world reality. That was Libby Snymer in conversation with Annette Sinowitz, Director of Policy at Toronto Solid Waste Management Services, Keith Brooks at Environmental Defence, James Pasternak, Chair of the City of Toronto's Infrastructure and Environment Committee, and Ontario Environment Minister Jeff Urich. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Healthcare was a hot-button topic on Fight Back this past week. An Angus Reid survey revealed that more than 2 million Canadians over 55 face significant barriers when accessing the health care system in their province, such as long waits to see a family doctor or lengthy wait times for surgery, diagnostic tests, and specialist visits. Another poll conducted for the Canadian Medical Association discovered that nearly 70% of people believe technology has improved their health care and can reduce wait times and improve access through virtual visits. These surveys come amid shortages of some critical drugs. Libby was joined by Shachi Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute, Sean Watley, former President of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Gerald Batiste, Director of the Cancer Centre at Montreal's Jewish General Hospital. When we look at healthcare in this country, it tends to be through the lens of the general population. But let's face it, uh, if you are fortunate enough in your life to be between the ages of 18 and 35, your needs from the healthcare system when it comes to primary care are, are pretty light and not generally, not generally as complex as they are as the body starts to age. And so that can often have the effect of, um, you know, smoothing out or, or hiding some of the underlying problems or really, um, uh, numbing people to the scope of, of what is going on for the people who are actually starting to need and rely on the primary care system the most. So you got to look at the biggest customers of healthcare in this country, if you want to put it like that. And those are people over the age of 55. I am going to bring in Sean Watley, who is a Monk Senior Fellow in Healthcare. He's the former president of the Ontario Medical Association. And another issue that we're facing is access to life-saving drugs. And for that aspect... I'm going to bring in Dr. Gerald Battist, who is director of the Siegel Cancer Center at Montreal's Jewish General Hospital. So there are three cancer drugs that are now on shortage. What are they and how serious is it? Well, there are more than three, but the, the most recent three that we've been uh, dealing with are uh, drugs called uh, 5-fluorouracil, <clears throat> etoposide, and navalbine. These are drugs that are commonly used in the treatment of uh, a variety of different cancers. Um, we, we, can't, we can't say that there's a shortage uh, in the sense that people won't have access to these drugs. And my point in bringing this up to the media has not been to has been to not create anxiety or panic. Uh, but there is a problem with the production. And over the course of the past five years or more, there have been uh, back orders on important drugs like this. In the meantime, people across the country, and this is a North American wide thing, are 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 scrambling. The pharmacists spend a lot of time every day trying to find a source for the drugs, make sure that they have the drugs in advance of treatment, uh, sharing between hospitals and uh, drug buying groups. 
and where possible, finding drugs that are of absolutely equivalent uh, efficacy and toxicity so that the patients are always getting the best care. So no one's losing out on anything, but we're concerned because this is a this is an ongoing problem that should not be happening. Isn't part of the problem the way that doctors are compensated now? If they do something by email, for instance, they're not getting paid for it. Well, that's a great question, and certainly it does apply in some situations. But a lot of times it's just having to do with the cost. For example, there's a gigantic fee that I have to pay to set up um, a secure confidential email service attached to my electronic medical record so that I can interact with patients. What I usually end up doing is just giving them my cell phone and they can just call me or text me. And so we we end up doing things in a non-secure environment because it costs too much for me to set up the email side. Now, phones have been around forever and patients like using the phone when necessary. And to be clear, this isn't all the time, but when you need a, you know, there's a critical lab result, you want to call your patient, you call them, they call you back. And so there are ways to interact for sure. We need to take, let go of the reins. I mean, the way IT works is by innovating at the margins. So unless you allow people the freedom to start finding creative solutions to their problems, uh, right now we are so um, um, uh, tightened, we're wrapped down tightly by all these regulations. No, I have to physically see you. I have to lay my hands on your finger before I can send you for an x-ray. Unless we loosen that up a bit uh, and not be afraid that services might increase, right? The easier it is for you to get tests might lead to an increase in the number of tests. I think that's a fair trade-off if it improves access for you. So it's a a sticky discussion for sure. Libby's conversation with Shachi Curl, Executive Director, Angus Reid Institute, Sean Watley, former president of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Gerald Batiste, Director of the Cancer Centre at Montreal's Jewish General Hospital. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. If you're a professional, there's a good chance you've had to sacrifice a good night's sleep at one point or another. Maybe you lose sleep every day. Maybe you haven't slept well in years. Zoomer Radio's Neil Headley has been doing morning radio and TV for 30 years currently with yours truly and Sam Houston on Breakfast Radio. And he knows the reality all too well. So Neil's decided to not only help himself and get a better night's sleep, he also wants to help you if you're sleep deprived. While filling in for Libby on Tuesday, I was joined by Neil Headley and sleep expert Dr. Mark Bullis, associate scientist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. So 30 years, I've been working these hours, getting up at two or three o'clock in the morning, and I'm not a napper. I've never been able to, I'm not one of those people, but now there's all this research out there that says, oh, actually, maybe that's okay, because if you're a person that can sleep anywhere, anytime, that's probably a sign that you're sleep deprived. What? Like, there's Uh, so much, it's such a fragile thing, sleep, but it is so incredibly important to everybody. My bizarre relationship with sleep started when I was a kid, when I used to listen to the big pop radio stations in Toronto and um, I used to fancy myself a musician so what I would do is if you can picture this I would lie there in bed knocking my head against the pillow I would lift it off the pillow about two inches and then put it back down to the beat of the music 
And so for me, at a very young age, bed wasn't about sleep. Bed was my place that I could lie there and I could rock out to the songs, sing along to the point where I irritated my parents and they would come in and make me turn the radio off. Um, But that's what bed became. And so now, all these years later, I get into bed and I, on average, according to what my Fitbit tells me, lie there for probably about two or three hours a night before I fall asleep. Now, Dr. Neal is not alone, right, in his sleep deprivation. That's right. I mean, you know, sleep deprivation is so common, you know, as, uh, you know, as professionals, we're really stretched to, you know, the push our maximum, always urgent things come up, opportunities come up, and sometimes they just don't allow for good sleep quality, right? And after many years of the bed not being associated really with sleep, but actually more for entertainment, you can only imagine, you know, it's, it's hard now to fall asleep, right? So, Neil, after all these years of being a bad sleeper, you got to thinking about using your media background and getting into talking about it through podcasts and maybe ultimately a book. So, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm turning myself into a science experiment where I'm going to be talking to people like Dr. Boulis, who doesn't know it yet, but he's about to become one of my best friends. Um, all right. <laughs> my pleasure. But uh, so the podcast starts on September the 2nd. It's called The Snooze Button. Uh, the episodes of the podcast are nine minutes long. Why? Because if you hit the snooze button on your alarm clock, your alarm clock gives you nine more minutes of sleep, supposedly. In those weekly episodes, it's partly talking to people like Dr. Boulis. It's talking to, uh, you know, Dr. Adrian Owen that runs one of the world's great sleep labs out at uh, Western um, and neuroscientists from all over the world. But it's also talking to high achievers, celebrities, people who don't just have weird hours like you and I do, but they have to fall asleep in weird circumstances. What it's what's it like to try and fall asleep in combat in a war zone? What's it like to fall asleep in orbit aboard the International Space Station? Hmm. What's it like to try and fall asleep if you're the starting quarterback in the Super Bowl tomorrow? And so, Neil, you're going to get these stories of of how these high achievers in unusual situations have gotten themselves to sleep. You're going to take their tips and apply them to yourself as the science experiment. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to every time I get a tip from one of these, you know, high achiever types and people from the business world, artists, whatever it is. um, And I'm going to try it myself for two weeks because I figure two weeks is probably long enough for me to be able to track uh, whether or not it's actually had an impact. And hopefully along the way, I find some of the things that maybe work, not only for me, but for other people. But some of the stuff that seems like just plain snake oil, like I'm walking around the mall the other day and I see this thing in a store and maybe it's wonderful. I have no idea yet. It's a weighted blanket. And supposedly, according to the advertising, the weighted blanket's going to solve all your sleep problems, which sounds like just the biggest load of hooey to me ever. But I'm going to try it for a couple of weeks right. and see if it works. Right. Neil, where can we get involved with the sleep button? So there's a website. Snooze button. The snooze a, button. Right now, there's really a rudimentary website up at thesnoozebutton.com. You got to include the the because I don't know where it goes if it doesn't. Uh, but thesnoozebutton.com and the podcast launches September the 2nd. And that's when we'll start to hear how your experimenting is going with the different uh, recommendations. We'll start to hear some um, myth busting. Yeah. Around There's a ton of those. Right. One of the things I want to tackle early on with this thing is there's this myth out there that if you wake up and you're able to remember your dreams, it means you got a lot of good quality REM sleep. Good for you. No. What it means is that your brain probably didn't shut down much overnight and your brain was busy focusing on the details of whatever your dream was. 
Zoomer Radio's Neil Headley and sleep expert Dr. Mark Boulis, associate scientist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. I'm Jane Brown. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lena in Etobicoke, who disagrees with U.S. President Donald Trump's message that mental illness is behind many mass shootings. Many people have many different mental illnesses, and they're caused by different things, and that, that is true, and that has been true, and, and there's, it may be on the rise, or maybe we're just more aware of it now, but mental illness is not something that you choose to have but hatred is or you're taught to hate and you have to teach yourself to not be hateful um so those two things i just cringed when he was saying kind of putting them lumping them together saying mental illness and hatred are the two things i don't like that they're being lumped together and really yeah the gun doesn't pull the trigger but if there were no guns there are no triggers to be pulled That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. <laughs> <laughs> 